0: our approach a lot of times is to try and acquire talent and, and try and just win that you know quote unquote war for talent etc instead of going now let's just focus on building the best team we can with the talent we have and seeing how that raises the level of performance of every individual and then ironically when you've got a best team ever culture when you've got a place that's a
1: great place to work you end up being a talent magnet anyway Greetings everyone and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we feature a best-selling author or world-renowned thought leader, all in the name of helping you elevate your leadership impact. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, and I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University who partners with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their on-demand online offerings include leadership, project management, artificial intelligence ethics, digital transformation, embracing allyship and inclusion, and digital wellness. Check out the team from Athabasca University at AthabascaU.ca. Today, we're talking high performing teams with my special guest, David Burkus. David is one of the world's leading business thinkers. His forward thinking ideas and best selling books are helping leaders and teams do their best work ever. He's the best selling author of four books about business and leadership, and his insights on leadership and teamwork have been featured in the most popular publications. Since 2017, Burkus has been ranked multiple times as one of the world's top business thought leaders, and his TED Talk has been viewed over two million times. He joins me today to share insights from his new book, Best Team Ever, The Surprising Science of High-Performing Teams. David, welcome to Unleashed. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So David, uh, I'm excited about this conversation. Uh, You've got some great content on the internet. Your TED Talks are wonderful. Uh, You've written a number of books and I love your style. Uh, and so I, I encourage everybody, like, if they haven't seen your TED talks, they got to go watch your TED talks to get a sense of your personality. Uh, so welcome here today. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you.
0: Oh no, talk about the gauntlet being thrown! Now I've got to figure out how to get that same style in this interview, otherwise everyone's going to be disappointed.
1: Be you, just be authentic. It'll come. It, it'll uh, it'll come through. Uh, David, you have uh, you spent a good portion of your life becoming you know an expert on all things leadership and I was curious where did your love affair with leadership and high performing teams begin
0: Yeah um the the line i use often is that like i'm just i'm trying to make work not suck right so i was studying in university actually to be a writer and that's when i took a couple elective classes in Uh, what I would call non-abnormal psychology, meaning a couple random classes in organizational psychology, science of motivation, et cetera, just found it fascinating, right? And so I thought, okay, this is what I kind of want to spend a lot more time in, Um, knowing that I wanted to write about and speak about and work with organizations about it. So I went to graduate school. I wasn't planning on becoming a professor, actually. I thought I'd only get a master's degree and then I'd go be a consultant or something like that. Uh, But my wife was in medical school, and that takes longer than a master's degree. So for some reason, I kept going um, so that we could keep going on study dates. And that turned into a doctorate and being a a professor in business school for a time and what have you. But the goal of it was always that, right, was to, I think work is too important. To most of our lives to let it be terrible and unfortunately for most people it is terrible right there's a reason why the office was one of the most successful television shows of the 2000s or why office space i keep a red stapler on those shelves behind me actually to, to remind me of this There's a reason that those sort of things uh, are so funny they unfortunately resonate with so many people and i just think that's a shame so that's been kind of the driving motivation for me is any way that i can make Work better for people, or the line that I use is help teams do their best work ever. Because when you're really performing well, that's usually when you're most engaged, right? Like engage. The relationship between engagement and performance is really interesting. Yes, people perform better when they're engaged, but when they're performing well, they're also more likely to be engaged.
1: Uh, you're are, you're speaking my language, David, and and I love the I love the ref the pop culture references by the way. When quiet quitting had a resurgence back in the fall. We were, uh, we were showing videos to our clients and in different keynotes we were giving of clips from the office. Like the office was all about quiet quitting you know, back in the late 90s, so I love that reference. Yeah, for the life of me, I could not get my head around that trend
0: people were talking about. Maybe it's just I'm going to feel bad here because I'm going to bash Gen Z for a moment. Maybe it's new to Gen Z. But for most of us, we were like, what are you talking about? This has been around forever. This is called phoning it in. This is called. this is called like you said, this is what makes the
1: office funny. People have been doing that for decades, unfortunately. Yeah. So your latest book, your very newest book uh, is called Best Team Ever. And uh, you hit on something else also in terms of the inspiration behind why you do what you do. And that really resonates as well because I think that being on a high-performing team is life-changing. I think it's absolutely life-changing to work uh, with a group of colleagues that you can fully trust, that have your back. There's no politics or gossip. They're gonna give you good feedback. They're They're gonna boost you up and support you when you need it. Uh, But the reality is I think most people will never know what that's like. And so I identify uh, with that inspiration. So tell me a little bit, how hard was it to sort of break down the key elements of the best team ever and high performing teams?
0: Yeah. I mean, what I would say is the hardest part was synthesizing it all. Right. And and by the way, you're, you're absolutely right. Right. That I don't think most people have had that experience. And, And unfortunately it's vital, right. Work, Work is teamwork, right? Most of us, the majority of us. And in fact, to some extent, people's sense of company culture is actually more driven by the team they're on than the overall organization, right? And if that wasn't true before COVID, it's definitely true now because no amount of like free beer on tap in the break room or dry cleaning or whatever, uh, the, the normal sort of company culture perks we used to talk about 10 years ago. None of that's relevant anymore, especially, and I think this was true before the pandemic, if you're on a team that is just dragging you down. And you know, so to answer your question, I think the hardest part was sort of synthesizing it, right? There are there's been 30 to 40 years of amazing research on all of these different cultural team culture elements, right? So you have, you know, Amy Edmondson was sort of the person that took the concept of psychological safety and started applying it to teams and showing a difference. But even before that, you have like Musafar Sharif with the idea of superordinate goals on teams as a bonding element. So purpose can become a bonding element. Um, And then you even have more modern studies like Google's Project Aristotle, right? The the problem I had was that there's just, I don't really tend to remember lists that are more than three to four items long. And the problem is you look at all of that research and you can kind of have all all sorts of stuff. So what I sort of settled on is three, but really six, it's kind of a trick to get you to remember, right? So in in the book, we outline three elements that are an attempt to synthesize all of this stuff. And we call it common understanding, um, psychological safety, and pro-social purpose. So common understanding is really actually two things. It's clarity of your tasks dependability knowing that people are going to be able to execute but then also understanding your your teammates and understanding their differences and what have you so it's one but it's really two um psychological safety is the same way even Ed, e- Amy Edmondson agrees on this it's a sense of trust and respect so those are sort of two different things that's do I trust you enough to share my crazy ideas or speak up when I disagree, but also are we civil? Do we, are our interactions respectful, right? And then pro-social purpose is really meaning and impact, which is both kind of what, you know, your Simon cynics might say, people want to know why the work that they're doing matters, but they also want to know their specific contribution helps another specific person, what I call the who, which is in my opinion, more important than the what. So we have meaning and impact too. So. How hard was it? Honestly, it was hard until we sort of stumbled into that model of like, well, wait a minute, I can boil it down to three elements and then each element has two subcomponents and we cover the bulk of the list. Now, you know, because you live in this space, too. I probably left a couple things out, but I think that model caught most of what makes for a great team and at least most of what an individual team leader has control over, which is what I was really trying to focus on.
1: And I love how you broke it down and made it so simple. And, and you're right. I think the human brain can sort of absorb three or four points. And if it's three, if it's three main points with two subpoints per, I think, I think that does the trick. So I loved reading it uh, because it was great content, but it was a very simple framework that it, I, I found it a lot easier to retain as I, as I went along with it. So I think mission accomplished, David. Oh, well thank you. Well thank you. Yeah, I mean I a, my favorite study of all time, I'll just lay it out there, is, was
0: Google's Project Aristotle, but there's a reason everyone only talks about psychological safety cuz there's five other elements. There's five elements total and no one remembers all five.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, fair enough. Now, in the book, this, so the subtitle is The Surprising Science of High-Performing Teams, what will readers find most surprising about what you've uncovered?
0: Yeah. Well, so I I would say to me, the two biggest surprises there were uh, one execution still matters, right? So common understanding is both empathy, understanding your teammates as sort of quote unquote soft skills that to be honest, I feel like we've overemphasized maybe in the last 10 years, but Having a clear sense of exactly what is expected of me, knowing knowing that I have the knowledge, skills and abilities to do that, trusting or relying on my teammates that they also have a good skills and demand match and that they have capacity. Like I call it to use an American rules football analogy. That's blocking and tackling, right? That's fundamental. And yet, I feel like because we've emphasized psych safety and empathy and all of these other sort of softer science, I feel like we've forgotten that that part still matters. So there's a reason we open the book with that, because that still matters. That's basics. It's table stakes. All of this stuff helps, but we need to nail that first, right? And so actually, one of the first stories in the book is a story of a fast food chain based in the American Southeast, because that that clarity matters so much to that team and even produces engagement when you know exactly what's expected of you and you know you've been trained to do it it enhances engagement. So that's probably big surprise, number one, at least big surprise for me when I was outlining it all and writing it all. And I think big surprise number two is that we tend to talk about purpose as a personal element, Right? We talk about motivation, we do, maybe it's job crafting, Amy Resniewski's research, et cetera. We talk about it as a personal thing, but there's a strong bonding component to teams too. When teams know who is served by the work that they do and they know that that matters, they are more incentivized to work together because of that sense of purpose. And so purpose matters at a team level too, not just an individual one.
1: Well, and I'm looking forward to getting more into that with you. And I, I want to I stay on this common understanding thread. And so you said like common understanding involves at least a couple of key, uh, at least a couple of thing, key things is the clarity and the empathy. And, and I think you've highlighted some of the areas of clarity in terms of what is expected of me. What about on the empathy side, though? So what does sort of empathy have to do with generating or creating common understanding?
0: Yeah. So empathy in this case where I'm using it to specifically refer to how well I'm adopting the other person's mentality, emotions, et cetera. So that's understanding personality differences, work preference differences, even in our kind of staying hybrid world, even just the context people are working in. Right. We tend to assume that every team would work better together if everybody just worked like us. Right. But it's not true. It's never going to, first of all, it's never going to happen. Right. Um, So the next best thing would be being able to adopt the mentality of another person so that you understand where they're coming from when they say certain things or they default a certain way. Like I'll, I'll give you one example that I think is probably everyone's frustration. You feel like we should have had total clarity on this because it's a 50 year old tool. But let's look at like email collaboration. Right. People use this tool very, very differently. Some people are email novelists right? They're writing out four, five, six paragraphs in their emails because they think as they write, right? And others of us, you could tell which side I'm on because I said of us, are, are more like poets than novelists, right? We write emails in haiku on our phone, right? We don't even charge extra for typos because we would rather not be sending the email if you need to discuss something I would love to get on the phone or on Zoom or whatever with you, right? So just even one tool, but having empathy for your team and knowing that that guy that always sends the long emails is doing so because that's how he thinks, right? And even that guy, when he gets a short response from another poet on his team, he knows that she is a person who'd rather jump on the phone and talk it out after five minutes, and that would be much faster. So just knowing that about our different our differences, just knowing that on a team helps enhance collaboration because... Novelists don't get disappointed when you don't go point by point in their novel response. When you say, hey, good thoughts, do you have any time tomorrow we could hash all of this out? They don't get annoyed because we understand each other's differences.
1: Totally well said. And I, I'm curious of your take on this. from From my perspective, I would suggest that we see this is this is a gradual decline of common understanding so like in a lot of the organizations we work with we're like in the mid-market typically but uh, you know uh, uh, somebody started their their construction business 35 years ago with a couple of trucks and their brother and some friends and all of a sudden they've got this thriving business 35 years later, but they're still operating at the same. So we would say like Mm -hmm. complexity quite often gets in the way as you add technology, as you add locations, as you add business units and more employees, it's just like this gradual erosion of of clear and common understanding. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, complexity brought about by the technology, but just the simple headcount, right? When you're a small
0: business, and you're only really hiring friends and family, there's a really high chance everybody thinks alike and has very, very similar uh, preferences, et cetera. Great for the clarity piece, great for execution because everybody is sort of thinking alike. But eventually you get to, you know, 35, 40, 50 people and you run into very, very different people. And by the way, you want that, right? You don't want the person who's full-time accounting or HR to think like your construction manager, you know, your project managers running on construction. You want them to have those different preferences. But then when they collaborate, this is what a lot of times starts to create silos and politics and little stuff inside of larger organizations. It often stems from a lack of understanding, right? So, So you have the personality piece. And then, yeah, the more pieces of technology you add, like I pick on email, but my gosh, how many different collaboration tools have we used just in the last two years? And every one of them... Every, every person on your team is going to have a different approach to. Every one of them favors certain people that would prefer that tool and actually other people who aren't going to be as involved in that tool for whatever reason, right? It doesn't matter what it is. It could be video conferencing, could be in person. The office is, after all, just another collaboration tool. Could be email, could be Slack, could be whatever. Every one of those is going to favor certain people and disfavor other people. And if you're not aware of that, then you're going to be wondering why I never hear from this person ever again. Well, it's because you chose a medium of communication and collaboration that not doesn't really play to their strengths. And actually they feel sort of left out from it.
1: And I, I can almost guarantee that a lot a good portion of people that are gonna be listening to this are gonna be saying, yes, that is that's my team, that's our company, that's exactly what I experience every day. What are some tactics that organizations could start to deploy then to create more common understanding? Mm.
0: So my my absolute favorite tool is is a simple one, but simple doesn't necessarily mean easy. Um, It's what I call a working agreement. Other people call it a a team charter, or uh, one time I was working with a British firm and I decided to call it the declaration of interdependence. Um, They didn't think that was funny, but I'm an American. I thought it was hilarious, right? But anyway, what it is, is essentially let's have a meeting as a team and let's draft a document that is sort of our rules of the road. And it's not actually about the document. It's about the conversation. So in a team charter, we'll we'll look at, I usually run it with questions. So small questions to set the tone and then transitioning into larger questions. So small questions like what's a reasonable amount of time to wait for an email response before we call someone or re-email them or what have you. Is it, end of day? Is it 24 hours? Is it 48? Some people on your team think they don't have to respond unless you specifically tag them and ask them a question, right? So we need to have that conversation. And then bigger questions, like why do we want to what under what situations do we want to bring everybody back in person? What tasks do we do that lend themselves to in-person versus virtual? Um, what What are reasons to call a meeting? I feel like in the last two years, we've just had way too many meetings. And often the whole purpose of the meeting is to present information at someone. Well, does that really need to be a meeting or could you just record yourself talking over the slide deck, right? So big questions like that too. Usually wherever there is a current conflict or a recent conflict around communication or collaboration on your team, it's a good indication there's one or two questions we could ask that would clarify that miscommunication. And so we go question by question with the team and we come up with rules of the road. We come up with an answer, not that we're gonna live with forever, but that we would agree to abide by for the next 60 to 90 days. And when we have all of our different answers, we lock that document and say, "Let's revisit this at the beginning of next quarter." And we'll ask, you know, one, did everybody follow these rules, and if they didn't, why not? And then two, if we did all follow them, how'd they work? What changes do we need to make? Right? And what I love about these is not only, like I said, it's about the conversation because the conversation leads to a discussion of different, different preferences, different styles, etc. But what I love about it is that it can become. Uh, I've seen it actually become almost an onboarding document for new people too, right? Like here's the user's manual to work with our team. So you get common understanding with the rest of the team immediately. And by the way, in a couple of weeks, we're going to revisit this with you. So you're in, in this conversation and it changes over time. So that's probably my favorite tool to do to build that empathy side of common understanding. But again, it's not about having the answers. It's not about just coming up with one rules of communication once and being done. It's about having that conversation at regular intervals about how are we doing, what ground rules, what norms do we need? to To change, et cetera. because where most miscommunication and misunderstanding of differences happens on a team is where one person is taking for granted or, or, or assuming that everybody else in the team thinks some way and they're actually the only one that thinks that way. And so if you can force that conversation through something like a working agreement, you can make all of those taken for granted assumptions. I actually don't know how to reverse taken for granted. Make them granted, make them whatever. You can get them out in the open.
1: Yeah, that's good. we'll let, we'll we'll leave it. We'll leave it at that. And I, and I think it's great. That, so that was good tactics, but you also made it fun. Give it a really clever name. Like the Declaration of Interdependence, that is wonderful. Like we, we should be having some fun with this stuff. And, and that resonates. We, about I don't know, about five or six years ago, we created our own, we just called it a boring, the results communication charter. You're having me rethink our labels now, but uh, yeah, it's, been, yeah. it's been helpful. Hey, the most, I will tell you probably the most
0: common term I use when I'm working directly with teams is just, hey, this is our frequently unasked questions meeting. What are the questions we wish we would ask that don't, that go unasked, right? And then that that creates a, a a I don't know how what the abbreviation
1: would be, but FA UNQ, right? Uh, document that we circulate around in the team. I can imagine if you're part of a larger organization, it could be difficult if you're not on the senior most team to get some of these initiatives running. Can it be effective if a functional team within a larger organization just decides to create their own? Communication charter uh, or common understanding, like can that work?
0: Yeah, yes, and in and in fact, I don't recommend orgs do it organization wide. I think every project team or every functional team should do their own one because they're they're tasked with doing different things, so they're going to have different rules of the road, right? To use our construct, to keep using this construction company analogy, right? The folks on site doing the execution, doing the actual construction, they have a totally different need and totally different sense of collaboration than the folks who are running the books in the, in the back office, et cetera. Right. And so the tools they use are going to be different. That means the preferences are going to be different. So even if you roll it out company-wide, it's still going to be team by team by team in terms of these actual documents. You might end up with a couple, like I worked with a a mortgage company with tens of thousands of employees recently, and they, they had a rule for email. Like you have to respond in 24 hours. That's a company-wide rule, but like that's a very that's
1: one small thing there are all sorts of other stuff that's specific to the team okay that is interesting so I one of the things I like about that is the I, I always enjoy opportunities to provide people with autonomy so if, if if you can give them some creative freedom around that say hey here's what you have to do but you have a lot of you can have a lot of flex around what some of those rules of engagement are for your own specific team I could see there be a lot more enthusiasm and a lot more ownership and buy-in to to do that activity, how do you then ensure that it doesn't create misunderstandings outside of that functional team then?
0: So, you know, to to use the mortgage company analogy, I I think if you wanted to do it, if you wanted to have both, right, like I would think of it as concentric circles. There's the broader concentric circle that maybe we as a senior leadership team have decided are, this is how we collaborate. This is our preferred collaboration. Um, But you have to keep those broad and specific so that teams can get specific to them, sorry, broad, not specific, so that teams can get specific to them right? So you can't go super, super specific if you're going to do something organization-wide, right? And and I think this is true for culture in general. You have the broader organizational culture, but every team has its own sort of unique culture on that team. Problems arise when somebody's team culture is over here outside of the bigger circle, right? You want them to be concentric circles embedded on each other. Uh, You don't want some other team just way off outside of uh, the norm. But as long as they fit inside the broader circle, I think you're still fine.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So that that does a good job of covering common understanding. And uh, let's go into psychological safety a bit more then, David. And I know you you said that the cornerstones of it are uh, trust and mutual respect. Maybe break that down a little bit more for us.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's it, 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 at, at first glance, it sounds like, okay, great. Right. I get it, but actually I think it's it's worth stressing the differences between these two because they are different and both are vital to that sense of psychological safety. We tend to use trust and psychological safety interchangeably, but that's not really true, right? Because I am, when I'm being vulnerable to my team, when I am admitting a failure, when I'm sharing an idea, like a crazy idea, and every, by the way, every sharing of every idea is an invitation to judgment and therefore it's a vulnerable moment, right? Because you might shoot the whole idea out. Or if I choose to disagree, if we're discussing something and there's a team consensus and I step up, all of those are moments of trust. How you respond or how I feel like the team responds to my moment of trust determines whether or not I trust the team in the future. And that's where the respect piece comes in. Do I feel that my dissent, my disagreement, my admission of failure was treated civilly, respectfully, et cetera, or do I feel like my crazy idea was shot down right away? Or do I feel like as soon as I admitted a little failure, everyone tried to stack the whole project failure on me and now I'm the scapegoat, right? How how does the team respond? So, you know, it's, it's two sides of the same coin, if you will, of psychological safety, but both matter because they create a cycle. You step out and trust, you feel respected and, and you feel honored, then you are more likely to trust in the future. Then somebody else steps out and trust, you respond with respect, they're more likely to have, and the cycle sort of continues. And I think that's why Amy said, it's a climate of mutual trust and respect, because you really need both to keep that sense of psychological safety building. We could take you off in the woods, make you fall backwards off a log and I'll catch you once, and then we call that trust. Uh, but unless we teach you how to act respectfully in the workplace, any trust we do in like a team building exercise, trust ball type of thing, it's going to disintegrate the first time you share a crazy idea and someone goes, "Now nah, that's dumb. That'll never work."
1: I want to test an assumption here. Now you're working with, I mean, literally, you're 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 interacting with thousands of thousands of people a year. When it comes to things like psychological safety, trust, mutual respect, like I don't think we have a knowing problem. I don't think we have an awareness problem. I think we have a doing problem. I think we have a practicing mm-hmm. problem. Would you agree with that?
0: I would. I th- I think the respect is the this is why I sort of emphasize it. I think the respect is that missing piece. Right. I think I think we've been talking about is especially since. You know, the 2000s, uh, we we sort of uh, events here in the us. kind of forced a global conversation or at least a conversation in the West about um, about the need to really emphasize diversity, equity, and inclusion, right. and and in, I mean, in Canada, similar things happen in terms of um, dealing with na- you know Native Canadians, et cetera. We've forced this con- this larger con- unfortunate events, fortunate conversation finally got uh, advanced because we've been banging the drum of Dei to no one for a long time and now everybody's finally listening. I think the problem is that got boiled down to, we need to make sure people feel included. We need to make for sure people feel like they can trust, et cetera. That's true, but we also need to treat people sort of how to act civilly in the workplace, right? That you can't shoot down an idea immediately right that that there are certain people in the workplace whose voices go unheard because we're choosing medium of communication that aren't, don't lend themselves to them or or that the last time they spoke up we talked over them so fast they felt like overlooked so now they feel less trusted so i agree with you i think i think we know that that trust piece is act, but respect is a learned behavior. It's a behavior. It's a way we act, right? So when I work with a lot of organizations, the first thing I do, I, this sounds like basics, but basics are very rarely applied. The first thing I do is sort of teach them active listening. Like how do you actually demonstrate to someone that you're engaged in paying attention and not staring at your phone or waiting for your turn to talk, etc. because just that can increase that sense of psychological safety because when you're zoomed in on somebody and you and they feel like what they're saying is the only thing you're focused on in the moment and that you accept and you hear them and you respect what they're saying just that makes them feel more willing to trust you in the future right so so i totally agree with you i think it's kind of an execution how do we demonstrate that and you see that in the research too by the way christine porath um, at george at georgetown i think Uh, If I'm wrong on that, somebody, somebody watching, feel free to email me and correct me. We don't have Uh, a fact checker, but maybe we should get one. Yeah. Right. But she's the world's, you could call her the world's most respected expert on respect in the workplace. She studies civility, et cetera. And one of the things she finds is that most people when asked for the reason that they were the recipient of uncivil behavior, most people blame leadership, lack of modeling the way from leaders, either senior leaders or mid-level leaders, lack of modeling respect. So nobody knows who to copy, so nobody really knows what professional, respectful behavior is supposed to look like in this context.
1: That is fascinating. Now, you mentioned the relationship between global events, and there's been way more talk in the last few years of polarization through political divisiveness and then, of course, the obvious with everything that's going on with the pandemic and different views there. Do you think that in the workplace then we're less open to nuance and we're we're more inclined to sort of cling to our beliefs than ever before, or has this always been around? We're maybe just more aware of it? I think it's well, there's a couple different factors here. Um, so there's a
0: really interesting study that came out pre-pandemic, but it kind of got attention during the pandemic and during the polarization on um, we have a natural human bias when we find out that someone disagrees with us politically to undermine their intelligence in other spheres of life. In other words, like if, if you're far left liberal and you find out that your dentist is conservative, you're actually more likely to be like, well, we can't be that great of a dentist right? (laughs) right. We do that on a regular basis. Uh, And we do that in the workplace too. When I find out that somebody has this certain ideology, et cetera, I start to question their competence in all sorts of other places. So we have that, that bias has always been a part of us. The difference is I think we're so connected and we're so in this world where we're constantly posting or reposting our positions and our ideas on social media and what have you, it's never been easier to find out that those people disagree with you. Right. Whereas in the I, you know, I wasn't alive in this era, but I feel like the 1950s and 1960s professionalism, the workplace, you know, you you talk about the weather, you talk about sports and like that's it. Right. Be- and, and there was a whole sort of idea that you don't talk about these things. And I think some of them are things we need to force a conversation with. In the United States, where I am, we have more and more millennials and Gen Zs saying, no, I want my organization to be more active in social causes and political causes, which, by the way, is not actually true. You want your organization to be involved in political causes you agree with, right? If they were involved in ones you disagreed with, you'd be just as mad, if not more mad, right? Right. <laughs> so I think we have to have that, right? We have to have that nuanced conversation about just how active we're going to be and how active we're not going to be for the sake of continuing to build a climate where there's a sense of respect, um, et cetera. Because I don't know... I don't know that that bias is going away, right? I, I, again, like I said, it came out, the paper came out before that era of polarization, it, suggesting that it's always sort of been there. The difference is maybe prior generations or 10 years ago, et cetera, we didn't talk about it as much, so we didn't find out about
1: it as much. And now that it's there, we're all figuring out how to deal with it. Yeah, and I, for all the reasons that you just mentioned, I think like leadership is more important now than it may have ever been uh, sort of in the history of the of the workplace, and part of the reason I say that is I is I think that it's getting harder for us to win the war against our naturally occurring uh, cognitive biases, and so we we, mm-hmm. we have all of this awareness, and with sometimes with awareness you can help break them down a bit. But there's something else you said about conversations, David, is that this is not like a scientific um, uh, um, sort of fix for it, but. I've never had an actual conversation with someone that thought differently than me that didn't come out with some kind of a productive resolution, even if we didn't change each other's minds. There was always some kind of like of a bond that was created there. Like I can't think of a single case where that hasn't been the case. So you wanted to say something.
0: Yeah, well, no, I would just I would just say, first of all, you're super lucky that the the people you've had those conversations with. Right. Uh, And maybe it's a Canadian American difference. But one of my buddies has this great saying, uh, and I'm sure he stole it from somewhere else. But we, we talk about sometimes creating safe spaces, but there's no safe spaces. There's only safe people. Right. And so I think this is that need to build that sense of psychological safety is it teaches people how to be safe for somebody else to disclose those differences. When when you're not having those conversations, right? When I just, you know, let's say Jeff tweets out his support of some sort of political cause that I disagree with, but we never talk about it, that bias still exists. It's still in the back of my mind that Jeff supports that thing and clearly he's got to be an idiot because only an idiot would support that. If we never bring it up to the surface and have that conversation, that just sits there nagging at me the whole time, right? So so I think there is something to that idea of, of creating that safe space, teaching people how to be safe people, and then having those conversations. That may be a way out. Until then, it may be better not to have the conversation, to be totally honest. It, it may be better to set ground rules around, like, these are the things we'll talk about and these are the things we won't. until we feel like we can raise the collective psychological
1: safety on a team Where it's safe to have that conversation. Does that make sense? It does, it does. But you're okay now. This is this is this is going in all kinds of directions I didn't expect. Yeah, right. But fascinating and this this feels like a very deep conversation to me. So I wanna come back to social media. We have more visibility of our employees' behavior and their beliefs than, we, than, than we, we, we ever have before, right? We can see what they like, right. we, we can see what they comment on, we see things that they don't even know that we can see. And so if those biases are just automatically triggered, like the dentist example um, that you said, what, how do we bring those things, to use your language again, to the surface as leaders so that we can confront those biases and not let them have as big of a hold on us or a big of an effect on how we treat our employees then?
0: Yeah, so uh, you know, I think I think you need to read your room and the re- read the room or know your team, if you will, and see if it's all that important, right? Like one of the things that tends to happen, and this may be the reason this is so tense right now. One of the things that tends to happen right now is that we have the the pol- the political or the social division du jour, if you will. Like there's a flash where it feels like for thirty days or sixty days, everyone has to take a stance on this, and then we move to the next one, right? And so, you, and so you sort of have to know, like, is this something my entire team really, really cares about? And therefore, it, it, we should have that conversation. Then you call the team and you have that conversation. Is it something one employee really, really cares about, right? And nobody else is even seeing except I saw it or what have you. Now, obviously, if somebody posts something and then somebody else on your team is sending it to you as a leader... Well, then you at very least have to address it with those two people. But it may not be something you need to have a team-wide conversation about, right? It may just be that person, and I don't mean to undercut that person because obviously they felt passionate enough about it to post it. But it may actually pass for a little bit. But then there's that sort of broader. There are there are deeper um, issues. There are you know there's discussions that are going to go on socially or politically for for years. And then, yeah, you may you may want to have that conversation. Now, I, I would say, again, I feel like the more likely it is to cause a division, the later in the process of building psychological safety, you should bring it up. Like start with our work differences, start with our personality differences, etc. because you may not have a ground, you, you may not have a reserve of trust to tap into, right? If that conversation goes wrong, you could end up way worse off. So let's build it gradually over time and then we can get more and more. And then, yeah, you're exactly right. You may get into... Uh, a situation where it becomes that conversation becomes even better for your team. But I don't know that I would risk doing it right off the bat, if that makes sense. And again, I may be speaking from my American bias where I feel like we are uh, we're a lot worse at having
1: these conversations <laughs>
0: than, than our neighbors to the north.
1: I think, no, I I, I think you're bang on. Uh, as As you were talking, all I kept thinking about was there's a lot of wisdom in what you said there's the best leaders are are wise right they know they have more patience they have more understanding they're more they're more curious and less to sort of react there's a lot of emotional control that is there right so i I, um i think that you're coming back kind of there's a stoicism even in and around there david that's that's coming up for me Uh, so thank you for that i think that's helpful no 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 my my pleasure Let's talk about the third piece now, and so uh, the third component of of best team ever is pro social purpose. And there was something that you said uh, in in the book that people are more motivated by who than why. That was new for me. Can you yeah. explain that?
0: Yeah. So I mean, I think why is great. I, I have nothing wrong with it. Right? There's a certain gentleman who popularized the term. I think he's brilliant. I'm almost jealous of him as brilliant as a speaker he is, et cetera. Right? Which is great. Um. I think when people are, the problem is that especially when you're at senior leader levels and especially when you're mid-organizations and you're starting to grow, like when you're a small business, actually your who is very clearly defined. And then you grow larger and larger and larger. And at some point in the growth, you feel like you need to rewrite your mission statement. And then somebody tells you about this need, why? And suddenly your mission statement is blah, 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 disruption, blah, 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 changing the industry with ethics and integrity. Like it's this word salad. That doesn't actually motivate anybody, <laughs> right? Um, because that's not actually, I mean, people, there are certain people, very small set of personality types that can get really, really process that bigger level why. But most people, you you were designed or evolved to judge your impact on the world based on who you saw was affected by your work. We were, we're much smaller tribes when our brains were developed, Right. So you want to know that on a more specific level. And that, that ties into a whole wealth of research um, led by sort of Adam Grant and Francesca Gino and a bunch of others on what's what they call pro social motivation, the motivation to protect or promote the well-being of other people. We want to know that. We are I, I think the difference with the reason I call it pro-social purpose is that it the same level applies at a team level as well. Teams wanna know that. So why is great. But the best answer to why is to give a clear and concise definition to who is served by that work that we're doing. And by the way, that doesn't always mean customer. That doesn't always mean end stakeholder. Some teams it's actually other teams inside the organization, what we might call an internal customer or or what have you. But there are certain teams who are in support functions and their role is to serve this other team. I worked two weeks ago uh, with a group and they were mostly from legal and compliance, right? Which is one like everybody hates to use an office analogy, right? Everybody hates Toby. They were the sort of Toby. But if you think about what they really do, they protect the whole organization, right? They're holding the line. They're the fortress for sort of the whole organization. So when you frame it that way, that like our job, we do all of this to protect everybody else, to keep everybody else from malicious lawsuits or to keep everybody else from messing something up and falling out of compliance, et cetera. We help people do their best work by keeping them in line that's almost motivating. Like I'm not in compliance, but I'm almost motivated by that idea, right? So again, it's not necessarily that why, it's who. Can you point specifically to a group of people and go, the work that we do makes their life or at least their work better.
1: And in doing so, that's kind of our contribution to the world. That's how we make the world a better place. We worked with a construction company 10 years ago and their specific part, they did road construction and erected traffic lights. And it took them a long time to figure out that they also had some pro-social purpose because they just go and put up traffic lights and then repair them and fix them and do some traffic monitoring. But where they finally land, this was after months and months of conversations and just trying to subtly drip in uh, uh, some context for why it might be helpful for their employees. But where they landed was they help get people home to their families safe at night. And sometimes the struggle I find is that people think it's too hokey or it's too much of a stretch. So it's not actually true. Uh, but they were able to get to a place where it actually is true and it framed the work that they do differently. But I I also really like that you just made it okay for people to have it be about the internal, about the employees. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be about their stakeholders or customers.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I uh, two two thoughts right off the bat. So first, I love that. And if I, and not to tell you how to do your own job, but if I were doing that work with you, like the next thing I would do once I get that from, from you and your group as a leader is I would be trying to track the safety stats at every intersection before and after we installed lights, right? What did it look like before? What is it now? right? So that we could show them on a regular basis. Hey, I mean, and that that creates an opportunity to go back to your whole team and go, hey, it's been six months since we did that one at the corner of this and this. I just wanted to show you this data. Look at this, right? We did this, you know, um, that kind of thing. So I, I, I would be doing that. On the internal side, when I work with usually larger organizations where they're large enough to have multiple different managers, multiple different teams, divisions, etc. the thing that I tell them is to share gratitude from leader to leader on a regular basis. When one team helps your team do some work, whether it's because they gathered a bunch of data and that helped your team do the report, or they did all the financials, got all the logistics to install that light, whatever it is, because no no teams work in a vacuum. Uh, you know, you wouldn't, If the joke that I like to use until I started working with an outsourcing firm is uh, is that every team, every function in an organization is vital. If it wasn't, we would have outsourced it. Right, And so we all need to collaborate. It takes more than just the five people on site to install a traffic light. So when that's done, if you're sending that back to the team that helped you do your work, you're giving them a story they can share with their team. Right? When you say, thank you so much for this because it helped our team do that and execute on that, you're giving that other leader a story they can go back to their team with and really share how powerful their sort of who was because they helped you.
1: Those are great tips. And so if I'm understanding this correctly then, so the, if I go back to the traffic uh, light construction company Mm -hmm. example, the meaning of that piece would be guiding families home safely to their families at night. The impact would be sharing the stats.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, or, or, or really the way I look at it is, is I sort of split the difference when I outline meaning, right? You're exactly right, right? But we want to serve the contribution, right? So, so the meaning is that we did that. The act is that we did that, right? And then the impact is how we show that down the road, but we want to make sure that it's, it's, that people actually get their contribution, right? And that's not for the people installing the light. That's obvious. They were there. They remember, they remember their contribution, but for the other teams that serve and support of those who execute on the front lines, right? To use like Vinet Year at HLC Technologies always talked about the value zone of an organization, the people that are interacting with customers on a regular basis and everything else in his opinion, even senior leadership is actually supportive of the value zone. What we need to do, the, the one missing piece is we need to make sure that all of those other support roles feel that they made a contribution to that meaning and impact too. So, so that's why I say share gratitude kind of internally so that those teams know it's about them too because they might just think, you know, they're. Their job is procurement. Their job is to pay accounts payable, right? Um, and they don't see that that makes a difference
1: in all of these situations. Yeah, well uh, well said. So I like have you have you broken that down. I think, I think so, I think you've done a really good job of summarizing the key points of the best team ever with the common understanding, the psychological safety, the uh, the pro-social purpose piece of it. I wanna talk about some other elements of high-performing teams now that, uh, that you talk about in the book. And one of the things that really jumped out at me was that a high-performing team isn't tied to the talent of the individual members as much as you might think. Can you explain that?
0: Mm. Yeah, and and, uh, there's some variance here by field. I mean, there are a couple jobs that are individual-based, but they are less and less than what you might think. More and more work is teamwork. And so your individual performance, you come to a team with your knowledge, skills, and abilities. But your ability to express that and reach your full potential is dependent on the other people that support you, the rest of the team. You know, Boris Groysberg at, at Harvard Business School has a bunch of different studies on this, and they kind of, they sort of settle at 60% of individual performance is actually explained by the team someone's on, the culture they're in, the resources they have access to. In other words, explained by things outside of their system. Um, W. Edwards Deming always had his 85-15 rule. I guess the number is actually 60-40, but it was the same idea, right? That the majority of an individual's ability to turn her skills and knowledge and abilities into performance is actually dependent on the support she's getting, actually dependent on on what else is, is going on, right? And so, you know, I say it often as work is teamwork or I say it as this, as talent doesn't make the team, the team makes the talent, right? And if you think about to, to to move from work into, if you think about sports, because most of us either pay attention roughly or what have you, we see this all the time. Pick your sport, pick your league, whatever. Star talented player, we pay tons of money for them. We bring them onto this new team and either they're, you know, a total narcissist, or the team just doesn't click and the whole thing falls apart. And at the same time that's happening, there's some other team that is outperforming their, their uh, roster, that's outperforming their, their salary cap or, or their ability to pay people because they've clicked as a team and they're working together, right? There's So there's very clearly in almost every domain in life, there's something to this idea that who you're working alongside makes a difference in whether or not you can unlock that individual thing. And unfortunately for organizations, I feel like this is where we get backwards. Our, our approach a lot of times is to, Try and acquire talent and and try and just win that, you know, quote unquote war for talent, et cetera, instead of going, now let's just focus on building the best team we can with the talent we have and seeing how that raises the level of performance of every individual. And then ironically, when you've got a best team ever culture, when you've got a place, that's a great place to work. You end up being a talent magnet anyway so you end up getting the second thing uh, down the road eventually as well
1: yeah that's profound uh that is very profound it's very timely so i mean i'm going to suggest that you heard it here first people are doing it backwards don't find the talent work on the team first then you'll find the talent so that's fascinating it it, someone wants to go on a rabbit hole it reminds me a little bit of the Ringelman effect as well Uh, i think it was a 19th century agricultural productivity researcher that deduced that every time you add somebody to a team productivity usually gets worse, not better. It's, it's, you know, pretty interesting stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's not, I don't know that it gets worse, but yeah, every in on most, and again, most teams, right. um, It it seems to be when you add members of a team, everybody's individual effort goes down, right. To some extent you want that because of capacity management, right. You, you added a member to the team because hopefully you added a member of the team because you had so much work and you were performing so well, you couldn't all do it as five. So you added six. So actually it's some of that does happen. Unfortunately though, what happens on most teams is that it keeps dropping and we end up falling out of performance. When you look at performance in teams, there's a, there's a great study, mostly sports teams, but a couple other industries involved. There's a great study that came out, I think in 20, 21, uh, team antecedents, and I forget the rest of the subtitle, but it basically showed that performance on teams is not normal. It doesn't follow an inverted U-curve. It actually follows a power law, an 80-20 rule, right? And so essentially that 20% that are getting the bulk of high performance, they're just the ones that figured out how to, how to buck the Ringelmann effect, if you will, and how to keep everybody really executing.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's good. That's good clarity on that uh, on that for sure. I want, to, I want you to sort of play a business doctor with me for a second, David. And it's quite common that a leader will inherit or have to come and take over a, a bad or low performing team. So if you were giving that person some advice on here's the things that you should do first, what would some of those ideas be?
0: I mean, the first thing I would do is watch, right? I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't try and make any changes right off the bat. Um, I wouldn't, you know, often new leaders come in and they say, I'm going to go on a listening tour. That's actually a problem because you don't know who to listen to yet. <laughs> right. Right. And you're sort of really political. I hate saying this, but statistically 4% of any population are psychopaths. Right. So you might end up listening way too much to the, the one manipulative psychopath that everybody hates. And now they've won you over. So don't do that. Watch watch how the team interacts, just watch their, their regular observations. Don't even uh, volunteer to run the first meeting, right? Let, let them run it however they ran it before you came on and just sort of watch. Watch the level of respect on the team, watch how they're communicating, how do they handle when disagreements happen. And if you, if you watch them and you watch them through that, that lens of kind of these three pillars, right? Common understanding, psych safety, or pro-social purpose, you might be able to figure out right off the bat, here's where I should start. You know, like the team either no one ever disagrees because everybody's so scared of argument that they just never disagree or or they turn into personal vindictive fights right off the bat. Okay, we need to start with psychological safety. Or there are disagreements, but they're not personal and vindictive and they seem to just be over how we collaborate. Great, let's start with common understanding, right? So I would say the first thing I would tell a new leader that inherited a low-performing team to do is just watch, just figure out what's happens. It's gonna take you a while. You know, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of um, of the TV show Ted Lasso, I'm sure you've you've seen it, right? And I feel like it's funny because it first came out, and I was like, "What's the point?" And then everybody told me, "Like, you work with teams, how have you not seen this show?" And if you watch, pretty much the first half of the season, they're still losing. They're still performing terribly. and he's just kind of, he's trying to be positive, but he's also watching and trying to figure it out, right? And he ends up coming up to the most ironically, the most negative person on the team and he's like, well, you're the elder. people are actually listening to you. I need to win you over first, even though you're the hardest one. He got that from watching, right? That was Roy Kent by the way, if you're a big fan of the show, um, if you're truly Richmond till you die, Then you'll catch that was Roark, and he knew he needed to win that person over first. But he got that by watching the team, watch their dysfunction first, and then I'll figure out where to target first.
1: Yeah, and one one of my big takeaways on Ted Lasso is. He responds so favorably to other people's ideas, no matter how zany they mm-hmm. might seem. And I, uh, that's something I am always trying to work on myself. Oh, yeah. No, and, and from a psych safety standpoint, right, and openly goes up to other players because he's not hearing
0: from them enough and telling them, I want I want you to share your opinions more. I want you to talk about this more. I remember when they started, started turning around, there's a whole episode where he's like, okay, we need to come up with some trick plays. What
1: do you got? I don't have any. You tell me what you want to do. Yeah. And Imagine I, doing that. Well, I right? know. Exactly. Most, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and I like how we started off the conversation by talking about what not to do in the workplace through the office and uh, an and, uh, and office space. And now we're talking at the tail end about what to do through Ted Lasso. So I'm glad we've got some people actually modeling some positive behaviors in pop culture for a change. And, and David, I, I hope, th- my hope. We, we started talking about how we show the office. Yeah, Yeah, I hope that clips from that show
0: become the new office, right? Yeah.
1: I agree with you. And uh, David, I want to encourage people to go to your website because one of the tools, uh, one of the most valuable tools that I saw in my scan was that you have uh, some tips and some ways to improve motivation and alignment on a team in as little as three days. And so people can go check out that and some other things as well. Hey, I want to ask you about remote work. What are some common mistakes right now that you see remote managers making?
0: Remote, uh, I think the biggest mistake is the one they've been making for oh, almost three years now, and that is that a lot of mediocre managers assumed, pre-pandemic, assumed presence equals productivity. I can see you, I know how long you're here for, therefore I know you're a hard worker. Might not be true. You might be on YouTube the entire time. Hopefully watching Ted Lasso and not The Office, right? Right. Um, and we still sort of do that, where I still see too many managers suddenly watching email response times. Oh, they sent their first email at 8, they sent their last at 5.30, or or just calling meetings all the time. I, I, I still hear from people whose boss is calling sort of a daily stand-up virtual meeting every day at 8.30. Why? Just so that everybody's ready at the same time. First of all, does that even matter, right? Like, as long as they're not missing real meetings that actually matter, does it matter that they started at eight versus nine or that they work, they stopped work at five versus six? No, it matters if they got results, right? So that presence equals productivity is people are just looking for digital proxies for presence, and, and the whole thing is sort of mistaken. Uh, the other thing I see, and I'm, pro- I'm not going to win any friends here on this, is, is hybrid, right? As different organizations are rolling out their return to office program. You know, that the data on engagement in a hybrid environment is really interesting. People. Most people's preference and where people are most engaged is actually being on site two to three days a week and and working from home or somewhere else two to three days a week. And a lot of organizations have basically said, great, okay, we'll just mandate people come back two to three days a week. We need to have a conversation about the work that lends itself to the office versus that lends itself to working from home. And we need to structure, if we're going to call two to three days a week, we need to make sure there's two to three days of work to do in that week that actually lends itself to being in the office. There's no point calling people back to the office so they sit at their cubicle alone and respond to email. right? So we have to have a broad, and I work with some organizations that are doing this brilliantly, right? so it's not everybody making this mistake, but the office is just another collaboration tool. I said that that earlier. right? And so we have to have a conversation about when's the best time to use this tool. And what you might find for some teams is that's, uh, we only have about eight hours or 10 hours a week of work to do where the office is the best environment for that. For other teams, it might be a hundred percent of the time, right? But we need to have that kind of t- team level or at least functional level conversation about what are we actually calling you back to, and then we could figure out what the right amount of time is.
1: Yeah. With everything that's going on with uh, with hybrid work and artificial intelligence now on the uh, on the sort of on the cusp here and, and hitting us every single day, I wonder if you have any. Outlandish predictions about the future of work that you'd be comfortable to share. Share. <laughs> I mean, what's the old what's the old Yogi
0: Berra line that uh predictions are are difficult, especially about the future? Um, you know, I think <laughs> prob- probably the one-oh, you've never heard that. Okay, I'll I'll just I'll claim it's my line then, but I'm pretty sure it was Yogi Berra. Um the one I'm paying the most attention to is actually only tangentially related to hybrid. And that is the sort of trend during COVID of kind of enterprise level outsourcing, right? So there were a couple different organizations that shifted from what we might call gig economy, like everybody's probably familiar with Fiverr or TaskRabbit, et cetera, but shifted and went up uh, market into enterprise level. Oh, you need 100 coders to work on this specific project for six months. No problem. We'll find them for you. Sort of like a staffing agency for remote or hybrid workers, right? And I'm I'm really intrigued by that because in the 1980s, a, a business thinker by the name of Charles Handy talked about what he called the Cloverleaf organization. He basically said most organizations in the future are going to be a core of full-time employees and then another leaf of part-time and then another leaf that are, he basically called, I don't forget his exact term, but we could call them gig workers, right? And so the idea that that's actually happening at an enterprise level, I think is really interesting. And, and so it's, it's him, that prediction finally sort of coming true. And speaking to this broader shift where, the way we're structuring organizations more and more has to be based on the projects we're working on, not the roles we have. And an enterprise level sort of gig work like that is a way to manage capacity when you're going project to project. And I think it might even be a great way to end the sort of boom and bust cycle of rapid hiring and then layoffs and what have you, which is really just organizations responding to capacity and, and to revenue, obviously. Um, if you've got people, the, the people who volunteer to do gig work doing it and knowing that that'll be boom and bust. And then the, and you can kind of protect the other people whose social contract is I want full-time work. Um, so those are probably the two that I'm really paying attention to and they're sort of intertwined and, and loosely related to hybrid, but I think they're actually way bigger than where we're doing work, right? It's who we're doing work with.
1: Yeah. It'll be interesting to watch that evolve and, and how that plays out. I've been saying for a long time now that, and and it goes back to the earlier conversation that that teams perform better than just just hiring the hotshot individual talent. And companies should be going to recruit a high-performing team, not a high-performing person. And I know there's all kinds of complications around that, but the founder of our business, he's been actually saying for a while that he thinks work is going to get more like uh, um, producing a movie where you work on a team for yeah. six months and then you move yeah. on, and right? And, and I think it's related to what you were saying. So it'll be interesting to see if that yeah, project Yeah, that,
0: that sort of project-based work. or t- and, and there's actually, there's a great amount of research on the benefits of that from a creativity and innovation standpoint too, because you have a, a core of people who've nailed common understanding, if you will, who understand the ground rules for work and collaboration. And then every couple of months, you're bringing in new ideas through new people and new diversity. Um, if you do it well,
1: you can have a much more innovative organization than in the past. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You talk a lot about how great teams have a clear purpose that propels them. I wonder if we could finish off by asking what propels you?
0: (laughs) Well, I sort of said it at the top, right, that I'm trying to make work not suck. I think one of the big, I think this was true for me before uh, the pandemic, but one of the big things I watched that happened to the people that had the opportunity to work remotely, because at least uh, in in the United States, only about 40% of of the workforce went to work remotely. Uh, The other 60%, people like my wife, who's an ER doctor, who you can't really do that remotely. But for the people who could, you watched them get to rearrange their schedule around what was actually most meaningful to them. And sometimes it wasn't work. Right. So sometimes they were cutting out of work for two hours in the middle of the day or they were starting their day earlier than the office wouldn't would have been opened so that when their children come home at three thirty from school, they can be done for the day. Right. And, and I think it, it to me, what that reiterated is that work is never going to go away. It's always going to be central to our lives, but it doesn't have to be the center of our lives. It should complement that. And, but unfortunately, it interacts with everything else. I think work-life balance is a myth. If you're working in a toxic environment, you're going to bring that home with you. And the more integrated work and life are, the more important it is to make sure you're not working in a toxic environment. So that's really sort of, I guess that not only drives me, but that's what creates my sense of urgency, right? As we're heading into this bigger integration of work and life, thanks to hybrid and thanks to all these changes, it becomes even more
1: important to make sure people are not working in a toxic organization. Uh, I'm drinking your kool-Aid all day long, David. Thank you for that. Uh, you, you've, and you shared a, you've just shared a litany of, of tips and tools and insights and stories to help people make their own workplaces uh, suck a little less. So thank you for that. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Where can people track you down?
0: Uh, so the, the best place is, is that website you already mentioned davidburkus.com. I'm really lucky uh, as far as I know in the entire internet, there's only one other David Burkus. Um, and he is a Hungarian, 24-year-old Hungarian filmmaker. So it's pretty easy to know if you type David Burgess into Google, which one of us is which. And uh, you type that in, you'll get to to DavidBurgess.com, all sorts of resources there, including like a little a walkthrough document on how to do that working agreement we were talking about before. So DavidBurgess.com is the place to go.
1: David, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I look forward to speaking with you again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Until next time, everybody, this has been another episode of Unleashed. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and found it helpful, don't forget to give us a 5-star rating and subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever your favorite podcasts are found. And if you're part of a leadership team and you know that your organization is capable of even better performance, please reach out to us at UnleashResults.com for a conversation and learn more about how we might help unleash the potential of your team and organization.